0: What a blessing it is to be able to say that it is well with my soul because of what Christ has done for us. We will hear this morning more of the words of Christ as he prayed to the Father in John chapter 17. A reminder for us. The sections of this chapter, first few verses, first six verses, Jesus prays for himself. And then the next section, Jesus prays for the disciples. And then the last section, verse 20 and following, Jesus prays for all believers. Let us just follow along with me as I read the first few verses this morning. Jesus spoke these things and lifting his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all who you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life that you may know that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We find that Jesus declares eternal life consists of knowing God. Consider that Jesus' statement is a vital issue for everyone here this morning. J.I. Packer, in his classic book, Knowing God, asks these questions What were we made for? The answer is to know God. He continues What aim should we set ourselves in life? The answer is to know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? It is the knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else that is indeed the knowledge of God. This is stated clearly by the Lord in verse 3 of chapter 17. As it says also in Jeremiah, I'll just read this for us this morning, in chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, says the Lord, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness, On earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Father, I come before you this morning in the name of your Son Jesus Christ. I ask, O God, that you would indeed fill me with the Holy Spirit, that you would give me unction from on high, that you would give ears to hear, and that you would give me the voice that is needed today a voice crying out in the wilderness, proclaiming the truths of Jesus Christ. In his name, I pray. Amen. First point for us this morning. Eternal life or eternal death. Eternal life or eternal death. This is eternal life. That they may know you. That they may know God. The only true God. By means of or or and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. First, we want a definition of eternal life. This is a present active verb here in the Greek, a keep on knowing. It is not a once for all, I knew God then, or in the past tense. It is an ongoing knowing God. The knowledge of the only true God. One can only know him through Jesus Christ as we see and as we understand. In chapter 14, I'll just read this for us this morning. Familiar text for us, verse 6 through 9. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And I'll just... Stop at that verse. Eternal life, meaning to the ages, or forever and ever and ever. In the scriptures, it refers primarily to the life of the ages to come. The focus is on the resurrection life that is in the future. I'll read for you chapter 12, verse 25. No need to turn there. Jesus says, He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. It is a future reality, but it is obviously indeed a present reality for sure. And as the Gospel of John reminds us, and I will remind us this morning in John chapter 3, verse 15. I'll read it for us as well. And verse 16, another familiar text. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have eternal life. So we see this over and over again, this reality of eternal life. Present reality with a future hope. And we also, as Christians, as Timothy tells us, we are to lay hold of eternal life, to lay hold of that. Eternal life is a gift only given to those who have been justified by faith. As Paul tells us, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God that was Romans chapter 5 I'll read for you another text this morning as well from Titus also written by the hand of Paul Titus chapter 3 verse 4 But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of what? Of Eternal life. Eternal life is at times, well, most times difficult for us to grasp. We are creatures of time. Some of us are never on time. Some of us are always on time. Some of us are always early. Some of us are never early. But we are creatures of time. Day in, day out. And years fly by, do they not? Some of you who are more mature in years can, can say yes to that. It seems that the time is just going by. When you're young and you're a child, it seems like time just goes by so slowly, except when you're on summer vacation. And then it does, it seems to go by very quickly. And then school is there. Once again But there will be a time for the Christian when we will always be with the Lord, always be there with him, First Thessalonians chapter four. But when we compare to what we can grasp of eternal life with present life, we see such a difference. This life is short. here today, gone tomorrow, or gone today. Not knowing when we will breathe our last. Death comes for all of us, for the young and for the old. Life is short. We ought to pray much. It is fading. It is really a shadow of a life when we compare it to eternity. Life is like a flower which fades away, it withers up. Life is like a vapor, it will not last too long. We put a lot of stock into this life, don't we? Our present reality, with at times little or no emphasis on eternal life. The life we have is brief. It's also full of many troubles. Job chapter 5, verse 7 says, Man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upwards. Yet even in this life, those who belong to Christ have the hope of eternal life, which cannot be altered, which cannot be changed. The opposite of eternal life is eternal death. As Puritan Anthony Burgess says the following, This eternal death, as it has fullness of torment, so likewise eternity. For heaven and hell have no period. There is no time set when the fire of hell shall go out. It is called, therefore, unquenchable fire. So that these two properties are endless. They might startle and amaze every ungodly man. Where were you by these eternal torments at so dear a rate? For a moment's pleasure to have everlasting woe so that here there are two eternities before you an eternity of happiness and an eternity of misery sin says and the, the, the devil says taste of the honey of sin God says there is eternal gall for this now which will you believe either sin tempting or God threatening Was not Eve at first undone because she would hearken to the devil against God? What fruit or profit had Judas for 30 pieces, procuring to himself eternal horror and trembling? Eternal life or eternal death? One must understand and grapple with the difference between these two. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen indeed. We were reminded of recently of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. I would like everyone to turn there once again. Because he asked a very important question. And in God's providence he has brought us to this question in John chapter 17, excuse me, in verse 3. I'll just uh, remind us eternal life is a gift of God in Christ, in Christ Jesus our Lord, that begins here on earth and is endless in eternity, consummated as a resurrection of believers and at the return of the Lord. But the necessary question was asked in Luke chapter 18, verse 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth which is really an outlandish claim. When we were out witnessing recently, several of us, there was an individual who said he never broke any of the commandments. I was shocked. I wanted to get a selfie with this man because I've never met in my life someone who has not broken the Ten Commandments before, not even one of them. He should be one of those online influencers or creators or whatever they are. But what an outlandish claim to make, and to do so gleefully, and to do so with no regard to the word of God. Even understanding that you don't have to outwardly do these things, but it's of the heart, such as murder, anger in your heart without just cause. Or lying, or dishonoring one another. But the rich young ruler said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Remember, this, this individual was asking, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there's nothing you can do to inherit anything. It is already done. It's, own. it's been done by Christ on the cross. The only thing what man must do is repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this man said, I've kept all of these things. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He had another God that was put before the one true God. This man was an idolater. He worshipped what he had and he was covetous, As well, Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is much easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Indeed. Well, we know the answer to the question that this man asked. What shall I do to to inherit eternal life? Peter said in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So only Christ has the words of eternal life. Most or many will miss eternal life. Many are called, but few are chosen. Many will perish on the broad way. Few enter the straight gate. As Jesus says in Luke thirteen twenty four, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter it, but will not be able to. Those are some frightening words. Anthony Burgess again says, The number of those who shall have this eternal life is very few. A little flock they are comparatively to those many millions that are cast into everlasting flame. We ought to, Christians, have thoughts and resolutions now of eternity. Even as with we were already there. Take heed. Make your call and election sure. Eternal life or eternal death, the first point. Secondly... Knowing God or knowing of God. Knowing God or knowing of God. Again, in chapter 17, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, know God, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We remember that this is a prayer from Christ to the Father. When we consider words used to describe Salvation, or terms related to our salvation. Many words may come to mind. Terms that are important for us for sure, such as regeneration, or being born again. A new creature created in Christ Jesus. A justification, or the word we say often is saved all relate to eternal life. But here, in verse 3, we have another set of terms to describe eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. The knowledge of God is eternal life. The contrast to this, as James Boyce puts it, the contrast being is not knowing God and not wanting to know God, which indeed is. Is sin. There are ways of knowing God and knowing about God that are inadequate. I'll list these for us. We'll go through these for us. There are several of them for us this morning. Knowing God, the inadequate ways. First is having an awareness of God. Having an awareness of God. There are many things in our lives that we could have an awareness of with uh, profound knowledge, without intimate details. But a definite awareness brings to my mind, as I was sharing earlier in the class this morning, when we were out witnessing one evening, several of us, and there was a man in a pink suit that was walking around going into the baseball game. And I judged that man in my mind wearing a pink suit, first off. But it actually looked good on the man. I said, well, you know, that's a really nice suit. But I was thinking, what is this dude wearing a pink suit for? And I'm thinking this in my mind. And, oh, boy, here he comes. He's going to give us whatever. And he came by and he encouraged us and was thankful that we were out sharing the gospel. And then I mentioned his suit. And he was raising awareness for breast cancer. And he went about on his merry way, and he came back and talked for a few more minutes, and went back in there, I think, and enjoyed the game. A lot of things I learned um, about judging a book by its cover. One thing, there's another guy who was there, too. Might as well tell this story, since I told one. Big gentleman, bodybuilder type, thought he was going to be mean and aggro. And I was like, oh, here he comes and he was one of the most gentle men I've ever talked to as far as his disposition. And he wanted more tracks to give to some of the kids that he was with. I thought it was unfair that he was in such great shape and he was smoking cigarettes. And I was like, that does not make sense. So I wanted to talk to him about that, but nevertheless. There again, though, judging by appearance. Being corrected in my own heart. Good teachable moments for us, brothers and sisters. But having an awareness of God, raising awareness, we see that we can have an awareness of things or raise awareness of things. This is such knowledge and awareness that all whoever are born into human race, into the human race, are accountable to God for. Having an awareness of God. Paul speaks of this in Romans 1 of the wrath of God being revealed against men because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them so all have this awareness of who God is when people walk around and say I'm an atheist no you're not you're a liar there's no such thing as an atheist you can call yourself whatever you want you know God exists you're suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness that's what the Bible says for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, this is the awareness, the divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This is a knowledge of God, or an awareness of God, that men and women will be accountable for. But this is a, not a knowledge of God that saves It is inadequate. General revelation cannot be missed. It can only be suppressed. The knowledge of God cannot be overlooked. It cannot be missed, only suppressed in one's unrighteousness. There's also having information about God. This is the type of knowledge we find in self-declared theologians. They may know much about God. And they'll let you know it too. They'll let you know it as well. They'll tell you you say something wrong, you mispronounce something, they're the first ones. They may know much about God without knowing God because they might not even be born again in the first place. They know about God. They have information about God. There's also the thirdly, the, the knowledge of God by experience. Listen to James' voice on this again. This, although better than either of the other two that I mentioned, is still not enough. We might think of this as the experience of a person who goes into the fields around his house on a summer night and looks into the twinkling heavens and returns saying, I have experienced God. He says, do not give me, and the guy said, would say, do not give me any, any of your theology I do not need words. I have experienced the real thing. We may believe that such a person is imagining his experience, particularly if it has nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is not necessarily imagining it, nor is his experience without meaning. He actually may have experienced something very profound and moving. Still, moving as this may be, it's not what Jesus meant when he spoke of eternal life consisting of such knowledge. That's like when we meet people that say, Oh, I worship God on the beach, and I don't go to church. I don't know you. Don't you worship the sand in the ocean? Just be clear. Just say it. Then we have churches that would invite for a worship experience. I've mentioned that before. No, the church is not Universal Studios. It is not Six Flags over Jesus. This is to be worship of a holy God. Leonard Ravenhill has something to say on this. He said, when people get an inoculation, they are actually given a mild dose of the disease that they are being protected against. He says, I wonder if this is not true of most people in professing Christianity. They get just enough Christianity to keep them from getting the real thing. And then, fourthly, there's the knowledge of godliness or morality without knowing God or secondhand knowledge of the practice of knowing God without truly knowing God. And the result of these in- inadequate knowledges of God will be that they will fall short of the glory of God. These are inadequate, and men will become what they worship. All men worship something. Then, of course, there is the true knowledge Knowledge of God the true knowledge of God I'll read this well I invite you to turn there Jeremiah chapter 10 please and then we're going to go to Daniel here in, in a bit I never say later I've heard preachers say that before we're going to go there later then people really get concerned what's later I'll say soon Jeremiah chapter 10. Another verse that came late in the game but how profound it is here for us. The true knowledge of God. Then I'm going to give you some practical truths from this before we move on. Okay, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. And here, smacking us in the face, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power. Who establishes the world by his wisdom. And by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. When he utters his voice there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. And he causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings out the wind from the storehouses. Every man is stupid. Devoid of knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his molten images are deceitful. And there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of mockery. In, in the time of the punishment, they will perish. The portion of Jacob is not like these. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is the true God that we have true knowledge of. And this is the God with whom we have to give an account to. I'd encourage you to listen or to read Jonathan Edwards' sermon on the preciousness of the importance of time and redeeming it. As we consider that we live for eternity, as we consider we have a brief time here, let me just mention these to you briefly. We are to use time time wisely because the days are evil. Wise use of time, secondly, is the preparation for eternity. Think about that. We're preparing for for eternity. I mean, we're prepared. Christians, we're prepared. We're going. But we're preparing to go. Time is, is short, thirdly. And time is passing, fourthly. We can't go back to yesterday. We can't redo anything from yesterday. We can make things right that we made wrong yesterday with people. But that day is gone, never to return. Fifthly, the remaining time is uncertain. It is uncertain. We think we know what tomorrow may bring. But how, to- how many times are we wrong about that? Sixthly... Time lost cannot be regained. Think about that. You know, we use the vernacular, and this is something we're studying, in a, in a study we're going through some of us, but um, time. It can't be regained. Think about what we do with time. We kill time. We, we say, I'm just killing time, or I'm just wasting time. But we're supposed to redeem time. Seventhly, you are accountable to God for your time. Eighth, time is so easily lost. And the ninth, we value time at death. If you've been with someone when they are taking their last breath. Or they have a few days left. I've seen this numerous times when I worked with hospice and all the regrets that were there. I've seen it from from someone who's dying without Christ, and I've seen it with someone dying with Christ. And there's always these things that they wish they had done, or people that they've wronged, that they wish they made right. Not bucket lists, but regrets. The Christian ought to die well. We value time at death, and then tenthly, there is um, time's time time's value in eternity. In eternity, we will give an account for that value. For God says, in Hosea six six, "For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering." That's what God delights in, is that his people know him. If eternal life is equated with knowing God, we need to understand what it means to know God. God opens his heart to us and allows us to know him. I I referenced J.I. Packer again. I encourage you to read that book, Knowing God. Maybe I should do an order for that, for the, so that we can all benefit, or many of us can. J.I. Packer says, We do not make friends with God. He makes friends with us. God makes friends with us, bringing us to know him by making his love known to us. God singled us out by his grace to give us the ability to know him. And knowing is, is used here in this sense in our text it's a sovereign grace word god's initiative in setting his love upon us listen how paul puts it in galatians chapter 4 verse 9 i'll just read that as well but now that you have come to know god or rather be known by god he says how is it that you turn back again to the Weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? But now that we know God, things ought to be different. As the Lord says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they do what they follow me, says the Lord. This is a knowledge that has affection, redemptive action, and faithfulness upon those whom God knows. So the greater matter at hand here is not that we know God, but that he knows us. Packer again, I am am graven on the palm of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. Think about that. Think that we're never out of God's mind. All of my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me, end quote. He has opened his heart to us, sent his son to us to redeem us, and we can know the one true God. And one who knows God does not have to look back to what was missed in life before knowing God. You ever get that way? You think of your previous life or who you were before. You dwell on it maybe a little bit, a little while. Then you get slapped in the face with reality again or with the scripture and you're like, why was I even thinking of that? I know God now. We focus on what... Is gained, And then Paul says something in Philippians as well, what he compares knowing Christ to. And this is something that is an eye-opener, perhaps for those new walking with the Lord. In chapter 3 of Philippians, I'll just read it for you as well, 7 through 10. Whatever things were gained to me, says Paul, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Paul the Apostle compares knowing Christ and compares all things as lost. They're rubbish, they're dung, they're as manure compared to knowing Christ. He does not dwell on these things, these things of rubbish in his mind over and over. We would ask, who would spend their time, when we consider this context, dreaming on and meditating on manure? It seems very austere to us, but often we do, do we not? Eternal life or eternal death, knowing God or knowing of God. And then, thirdly, evidence of knowing God or lack of evidence of knowing God. We go to the book of Daniel once again. We go to the Old Testament, to Daniel. First stop, chapter 11. The evidence of knowing God or lack of evidence. Now, these few points, if you read the Knowledge, or excuse me, Knowing God by J. I. Packer, you'll see these. I've uh, borrowed these from that book, a few points here, and adapted things from it. I thought they would be very beneficial for us once again. I, I mentioned these before some time ago. I don't remember where or when or what time of day it was, but nevertheless, I know we've heard these, or some of us have. Those who know their God have great zeal for their God. That's the first point. Those who know their God have great zeal for their God. Verse 32 of chapter 11 tells us something of those who know their God in reaction to a society that is anti God. And we can relate to all of these things that we're going to read here. <clears throat> By smooth words, he, this is a despicable person as described in verse uh, 21, I believe it is, will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. In other words, the wicked that are in power will seek to turn those who are godless into more godlessness, but those who stand for the one true God because they know God, because they have great zeal for God, will display strength and take action. And those are the men and women we need today in such a society in which we live. Those who know their God and have great zeal for their God. Daniel and his three friends stood against false religions of the culture, didn't they? We're not living in the time of Daniel nor of um, Anarchus, uh, the Fourth, But we are living in an anti-God culture. And those who know their God must stand firm, must stand for God, must resist the culture or be overtaken by the culture and take action. I don't like to point people out, so I will not give names... But this is encouraging to see two 70-year-old-plus women going to college campuses, one with a limp, going there and passing out gospel tracts to those in the culture who need it most. Oh, the heart for the young people, for those in college and those in high school, being raised in such a society. But to see that an encouragement and a rebuke for us however we look at it. Daniel and his friends stood against the false religions of the culture. There may have been more with them but they are told what to eat. Very simply, told what to eat. And none of us ever like that but in a serious perspective here they had this um, food that they were supposed to eat. But Daniel, chapter 1, verse 8, he made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might, might not defile himself. Now, God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander ...of the officials. When in chapter 6... ...the wicked commissioners and satraps... ...conspired... ...and schemed to trap Daniel... ...they influenced Darius to sign a document... ...prohibiting prayer... ...to any god besides Darius the king. It's interesting when you see that. When you see all these people surrounding one main guy and influencing him to do evil things. Have we seen that before as well? We say, who's running the kingdom here? We ask, who's running the country here? Who's running the kingdom? Well, you see that these influencers were there and did not help things, but made things worse. But God used these things, and he got glory from it. Chapter 6, verse 7. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any God or any man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. So long story short, he signed the document. It could not be altered. His stamp of approval on it. But Daniel knew that this document was signed. This is verse 10 of chapter 6. So what did he do? Did he go hide? No. He entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as as he had been doing previously. And what happened? They saw him doing this. He was thrown into the lion's den, left for dead, but preserved by God, who Daniel knew. People who know their God have great zeal and energy for God because they are people who pray. Secondly, people who pray. Daniel understood the hour at hand. We, Christians, must pray and read and understand the hour at hand. Daniel chapter nine and verse one. In the first year of Darius the son of ah- Ahasuerus of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books that the number of the years which was revealed. As the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he knew what was going to happen. He knew the hour at hand. So what did he do? I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting sackcloth and ashes. What did Daniel pray? Well, look what he says. Look how he prayed. This is how he responded to what was going on in his culture, to what was about to happen. He responded by prayer, supplications with fasting, He did not respond to, well, what are we going to do next politically? He did not say, oh, what are we going to do and how are we going to fix things and and where are we going to go and all this. No, he turned to the Lord. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, He confesses their sin. He stands there and says, We have sinned, we have committed iniquity, acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servant, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those who are nearby and those far away in all the countries to which we have driven them because of their unfaithful deeds that they have committed against you, open shame belongs to us, O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness for we have rebelled against him. And we'll stop with that in his prayer. This is a prayer with such fervency that many of us are unacquainted with. Knowing God is also knowing who he is and knowing who we are in comparison to him. Fourthly, those who know God have great boldness in him. In the right spirit, they can say, We must obey God rather than man. Can we really say that? Do we mean that? Those who truly know their God can have contentment in him. When the world gives us commands, we respond as Daniel and his friends did. But even if he does do this, even if you do this to, it, to us, let it be known to you, O King, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Let it be that we would worship the one true God who we know, regardless. Jesus is the only way that we can know God truly as the writer of Hebrews tells us. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus declared, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In sending his son, God communicated the incarnate truth regarding himself. Jesus says, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. That work was to give eternal life through the knowledge of God to the people whom God has given to him. He says these things as he prepares to go to the cross where Jesus displayed the perfect holiness of God, where he bore the fullness of God's wrath for our sins, where the cross reveals mercy and the love of God, where love and sorrow came mingling down, where such love and sorrow would meet. God sent his son to lay down his life for his people so that whoever would come to him In faith and repentance, would have eternal life and would know the true God. I end with a quote by Brother Paul Washer. Listen in. He says, Don't trick yourself. What you see in the mirror is what you see in your heart. Don't talk about a love for Christ that's not proven. Don't talk about a devotion to Christ where there's no evidence for said devotion. I'm saying for once in your life, make a decision. What kind of decision is it? There is no greater thing that a man, a woman, or a young person can give but their life. You only have one. It is fleeting. It's small. It's quick. And we are commanded by God to give it all to him. Let's pray. O Lord, that we that know you, the one true God, will grow in our knowing of you, O Lord. Thank you for eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord for those in here who are facing eternal death. We pray, O God, that they would see that they fall short of the glory of God, that they are sinners through and through, that they have broken your law, they have broken your commandments, they have denied Jesus Christ, but today could be the day for them, O Lord, that you would draw them to yourself, that they repent of their sin, and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, and they would be put on their road to eternal life. Let it be that all who are a part of this church know God, not just know about God. That it would be that we would express, and it would be fruit of our life, we'd have evidence of knowing you, O Lord, not the lack of evidence. Let there be more than enough evidence, O God, to convict us in a high court as it were. Oh, how precious it is to be able to be called one of yours, a saint, a Christian, only by what you have done. Empty-handed, we come to you. Oh, Lord, thank you for salvation in Christ. In Jesus' name.